Hello, and welcome to the Nauticast podcast, the one true chapter by chapter podcast going through Song of Ice and Fire one chapter a week. I'm one of your hosts, Jeff, better known as Brenna Beefish. And I'm your other host, Emmett, better known as Poor Quentin. And welcome to the 163rd episode of the Nauticast titled Things Fall Apart. An analysis of a Storm of Swords Catlin 2 in which amazing news, everyone. Catelyn Stark once again not, did nothing wrong by following her hard. Legally speaking, anyhow, right? Technically correct, which, of course, is the best kind of correct. <laughs> we'll give Catelyn credit for that. So, as always, this episode is brought to you by our Not a Small Council, our Hand of the King, Wolfman Zack, Grand Master Tim Bob Troubleshooter of Systems and Designer of Circuit Boards, Lord Commander of the Kingsguard, Mark N., Sir Keith J., Master of Whispers, Lord Philip the Merciful, Master of Laws, Archmaster June, Heel of the Lesser Poxes, Ragged Michael, War of the North, Nelson the Hammer, Prince of Dragonscone, Scarlet the Other Red Woman, and Mistress Whispers, Lord Micah, the Quilled Lion, War of the West, Harold the Golden Tooth, Master of the Bainfort, and the Kraken's Bane, Lord James, the Jim that was promised, Lord Jacob's Sisset, to the Hand of the King, Lady Zena Valyrian, Sir Jack, Lord of Sir Arthur Dan, Prince Rigor Targaryen, Sad Prophecy Boys Club, His Grace's High Inquisitor, Sir Frank B., Lawrence, Prince of Dorne, Kelly Ward, the East Mistress of Old Bay of Crabs, Stephen the Steadfast, Master of Hounds, the Blue Winter Rose, Knight of Highgarden, Lady Stephanie, Lord Carlos, Lord Andrew, the Restless, the Priest of the Drowned God, Sir Sorcedelica, Sugar Tit Stent, the Trogged Delight Warrior, Laura Pension for Nostalgia, Queer Alex, Beyonce's Favorite Stand, Herald of Sharon, Bradder of Cram- Bastard of Chromatica, Exalter of Black Lives, and Defender of Trans Lives, Rainbow Commander, the Ladies and General Thems, and the Nonacast, Non Binary, Not an Army. Haldover, the way for T.Y.L., Lieutenant Glenn, Lord of H-Town, Veneris of House Colgarian, the first of her name, Princess of Dragonstone, Mistress of Art, the Ovoric, Queen of the Pencils, the Eraser in the first draft, Queen of Monochrome, Devity the Great, Game of Thrones, Portia of the Realm, Lady Realist of the Seven Kings, Blainer Paints, Maker of Drawings, and the Michelangelo of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Lord Adam T., Lady Alexander of Tarth, Sir Christoph Logos, Bloody, Scor- Bloody Scorpio of the Redfield, Defender of the Letter of Kin, of the Wolverine of House Corgoyle, Lady Elizabeth, Mistress of Horse, Face, Lesbians, Sir Josh Noah, Bastard Bounty Hunter of the North, Surveyor, Chief of Parties in the Frozen Waste, Lord Peter, Grave, Rob Stark, the Cadaver King, and Horror of Harren Hall. Hold up, the Holder of Cups. Sir Tim, the Knight Who is Guided by Voices. Lord Nick, Thucydides, Lord of Plagues. Sir Jack, Lord of Sir Arthur Dane, Prince Rigor, Targaryen, Sad Prophecy Boys Club, Part 2. Lady Anna, the Lovely Castellan. Luke, Lord of Lone Leaf and the Pillar of Autumn. Joe Snow, King of the Metro North, and particularly the Tri-State. Squire Matt S., future Matt S., the one who brings balance to the kingdoms. Lord Kyle, Lord Samuel Seaworth, Sir Max, Lord, of the Con- Lord Commander of the Constitutional Guard. Lady Ivory Dane, aspiring noble author in the Seven Kingdoms. Lady of Starfall, Warners of the South, and patron of free, wheeling, bisexuals. Lady Jamisa, she who suggests the coconuts migrate. Lord Christoph of Arendelle, official ice master deliverer, the valiant, pungent reindeer king, keeper of feisty pants, and prince consort to his ginger sweet love, Queen Anna. Lord Sir Septon Brothers, Sir Grizzly Adams, the King's Justice, War of the Kingswood, and Sheriff of the Seven Kingdoms, Lord Anonymous II, Lord Tyler, the Prince that promises to wait patiently for the winds of winter, Lord D.B., Sister Winter, hopeful, romantic, and unrepentant, unrepentant shipper, Lord Monsef, and the severed head of a Targaryen prince rotting on the council walls. Council walls, that is. Thank you to all of our not-a-small counselors. Thank you, counselors, as always. And our spoiler wing, as you say in every episode, we'll potentially be talking about all published books. That is the five novels, three Dunkin' novels, histories, interviews, the Winds of Winter sample chapters, as well as Game of Thrones TV show. Anything and everything. Our question this week comes from Sir Corey L., a Sworn Sword patron, who asks, Hey guys, I was just curious as to whether either of you, but especially Jeff, are familiar with the <laughs> Aeswath Miniatures game. I got sucked into collecting and painting the models because of how close it ties into the lore, but I've also started getting into the actual gameplay, and has and it has admittedly opened me up to other types of miniature war games, e.g. Warhammer. I figured Jeff, with his interest in military history and tactics, might find it interesting. Have you checked out that uh, that game, Jeff? 
I I have not. So so I don't play games besides life. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I play it hard too. Hell I play yeah. it so hard. hard. No. Hard mode, right. Yeah, legendary mode, really, if you want to God get mode. down to it. God mode. <laughs> Let's not get there. But no, uh, I, I, have, I, have, I have not played uh, these games or the miniatures. However, I will say, so I recently, if some of you folks have been following some of my stuff on, on my Substack and, and on Twitter, I went through all of George R. R. Martin's, not a blog post, again, because I'm a fucking maniac and I don't know why I do these things to you know, attempt to get love that I was never given as a child. Anyways, so what you will find in a lot of George R. R. Martin's posts are tons and tons and tons of posts about these miniatures that he has collected, that he has supported, that he has painted personally. And also of interest to some of you is that in 2008, January 2008, George R. R. Martin released a series of new miniatures which featured three characters, two of them whom I forget. But the one character I remember is Melisandre. And the reason why I remember that is because that's how George R. R. Martin announced that Melisandre was becoming a point of view character in A Dance with Dragons. Because he says, ah, one of these three characters, I think it was like Loras Terrell, Sandra Clegane, and Melisandre of Ashai is going to become a point of view character in A Dance with Dragons, I have just decided. So, (laughs) you know, as much as like, I I don't find, you know, a lot about, you know, I I collected army men when I was a kid for, you know, reasons. And, you know, I, I, you know, collected GI Joes for a kid because I was fucking American that I, you know, I I didn't really do a lot of like the miniatures as, as an adult, but I do see how it's, it can be a lot of fun. And, you know, sometimes once in a long while, once every, you know, 30 years, however long the Song of Ice and Fire has been going, you will see that George R. R. Martin does some interesting announcements regarding the future of his story via his miniatures. Yeah, I've never I've never played the Aeswath one. I played the there's a Lord of the Rings miniatures that I did for a long time. And that I don't I don't I played it maybe once or twice, but I just loved just visually just setting up the maps with you know, it was more like making a diorama more than anything else you would actually play with. And I just I I kind of just loved the the intricacy of that. And the, the, yeah, I do love uh, a swap stuff that was made before the show. It, it, there was a video game series uh, on the Lord of the Rings that came out just before the movies were a thing. And it, it's, it was mm. so uh, – some friend of mine was playing it a couple of years ago. And it was just so funny to like – it felt like so rustic and antiquated just how the characters looked and talked because it was just based on the book still. And then you get like all the wave of like video games and merch tie-ins that came out after the movies. And it's just it just feels from a, a different era by comparison. But uh, I, I I was uh, looking into the the the, the Aeswaf one a little bit, and it, it looks awesome. People do some incredible paint work of their their different little squads. There's some great work on on the free folk and the wildlings, um, and it looks like it's there's some real tight gameplay. So I might have to check it out. There's a there's they have the pyromancers who wear cool costumes in it. People <laughs> are making their own custom ones. So yeah, that's awesome. I just it's it's one of those hobbies where I was into like you know half of it. And like, you know, the actual execution <laughs> was not necessarily for me, but just uh, just visually, like with Warhammer 2. Uh, whenever I've been to a con, I don't even take part in like the board games, tabletop games and stuff going on. But I do love like just walking through that room and just checking it mm. out. Because I just, you know, same thing that you can enjoy with something like Risk or, or Access and Allies or games like that. But just at, at a more intricate level. Uh, so I, I do love it for that. I used to love how fans would set A Song of Ice and Fire art prior to Game of Thrones mm-hmm. to music. I, I found that really. I, in fact, when I first read the books, and this is this is when the TV show was already in existence, but it wasn't quite the cultural jugger, juggernaut that it became. 
after season three, I want to say is when it really kind of reached the stratosphere. But, you know, you would see these, watch these videos of like the art and you're like, oh, wow, this is actually really cool. The way that, you know, artists have, have looked at the the world of, of George R. R. Martin. And, and I love the, the miniatures. I, I, a lot of the posts are get kind of annoying if, to be completely honest about the not a blog posts. Like George would post about it over and over and over <laughs> again about these miniatures. But the art is really good. I'm, I'm not trying to like deny that there's not a lot of artistry that goes into it. And not, and also not deny that there's some real interesting ways of looking at these characters. Like when you see Dampere and the way that he was like created in this miniature, you're like, this is actually outstanding. So especially since it's a character that was never featured in in Game of Thrones, and you're like, this is how George R. R. Martin looks at Dampere, and I think I now better visualize his character when I read about him in chapters like the Forsaken, for instance, which we had, of course, had a five-part uh, episode about. But uh, but yeah, I, I think at Ice and Fire Con, too, they do those board games. Mm-hmm. Am I right, Emmett? I, uh, yes, the one, indeed, one I was at in 2017. Yeah, they're they're awesome to see all the all the nerds sitting around a board game playing a song <laughs> of Ice and Fire games. It's, I think it's cool. My brother-in-law tried to get me into the Game of Thrones, and I was just like, I don't really understand this. I'm going to go back to sitting on a beach like a real adult. <laughs> That's how you relax. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. <laughs> So thank you so much to Corey for the question. If you'd like to ask us questions, we must answer here on the Nauticast podcast. You're welcome to become a sworn sword or higher level patron over at patreon.com slash Nauticast A-S-O-I-A-F, where you can get show notes, merch, weekly mini episodes that we record before each episode, access to the Nauta Slack, and shout outs at the start and end of every episode. And you get bonus episodes, like our upcoming November Patreon episode, which is going to be all about how Edmure Tully absolutely screwed up by failing to follow Rob Stark's extremely clear order to merely hold River Run. Hold the goddamn phone. I thought this episode that we discussed was going to be about how Rob Stark absolutely fucked up his order to Edmure Tully by not specifying his orders about what whole River Run actually means and how Rob Stark is actually at fault here. Is that correct? Interesting perspective. You know, we look at the same stars and we see such different <laughs> things. It's debatable. And hey, that's what our bonus episode is going to be all about. A debate about what really went down at the Battle of the Fords and where fault lies. With Edmure, with Rob, or you know what, maybe with George R. R. Martin. Let's blame him. I know, he's just the worst, the best. I, it's going to be a lot of fun, I think, to revisit this this topic and settle the score once and for all. Or more likely, as you <laughs> folks have found in these debates that we do for our regular episodes and our, our Patreon episodes. It's just a lot of fun to unpack all the salient points of the debate and engage in some good spirited discussion. And of course, this episode will only be available for our $5 and above patrons. So if you're not a patron, consider becoming one at patreon.com forward slash notacast A-S-O-I-A-F. But enough about Patreon. When we last checked in with Catelyn Stark, she had been confined to the gentlest of prisons for her crime of light treason in releasing Jamie Lannister against Rob Stark's explicit order. I guess that order, Emmett, is explicit at least. <laughs> You'll give me that. So I'll give you that. Just this, that one. Let's find out what happens when Rob Stark returns to River Run in this synopsis of A Storm of Swords, Catelyn 2. Rob, she knew the moment that she heard the kennels erupt. Her son had returned to River Run and Grey went with him. Only the scent of the great Grey direwolf could send the hounds into such a frenzy of baying and barking. He will come to me, she knew. Edmure had not returned after his first visit, preferring to spend his days with Mark Piper and Patrick Malister, listening to Ryman the Rhymer's verses about the battle at the Stone Mill. Rob is not Edmure, though. Rob will see me. I'm so excited for this chapter because this is the Catelyn chapter I've been looking forward to for a long, 
long time. Yeah, baby. The rain, rain, rain came down, down, down. And this, you know, the, the, the weather basically reflects Catelyn emotionally at this point. Hostertelli, her father, was alive but fading each day, asking for forgiveness after mentioning Tansy. Edmure left her alone and she was unable to walk around the castle. The only recent bright spot amidst all of this rain was when Sir Robin Ryger and his men returned without Jamie or Brienne. Catelyn found something else was afoot when she heard angry voices below her father's chamber on the day that Edmure returned. Men and horses were riding away from River Run, and the Stark banner was on the ground while a knight trampled the banner. Catelyn recognized Sir Perwin Frey and Martin Rivers among the trampling men, and when they all rode from River Run, and then they all rode from River Run. When Catelyn asked Maester Vyman what was up, uh, the good Maester kind of refused her. He, he was only the Maester after all. Vyman says that Edmure would absolutely tell Catelyn if he wanted to. But now Rob has returned from the from the west, returned in triumph. He will forgive me, Catelyn told herself. He must forgive me. He is my own son, and Arya and Sansa are so are as much as his blood is mine. He will free me from these rooms, and then I will know what has happened. Sir Desmond Grell was the one to retrieve Catelyn for an audience with Rob, and she is then escorted to the Great Hall of Riverrun, wondering whether she's lost two sons or three, which is damn more sad shit from Catelyn. As Catelyn enters the hall, she sees the assembled lords and ladies of the North and the South. She wonders if half of them will want her hanged. Half of them are going to turn away from her anyways. And was there someone missing in the ranks? Rob stood on the dais. He is a boy no longer, she realized with a pang. He is 16 now, a man grown. Just look at him. War had melted all the softness from his face and left him hard and lean. He had shaved his beard away, but his auburn hair fell uncut to his shoulders. The recent rains had rusted his mail and left brown stains on the white of his cloak and surcoat. Or perhaps the stains were blood. On his head was the sword crown they had fashioned of him. They had fashioned him of bronze and iron. He bears it more comfortably now. He bears it like a king. The hero, Ed Tully, undisputed of course, was below the dais as Rob praises him for the victory at the stone mill. But Rob warns that the Lancers will march soon and they'll have battles to fight. The Great John shouts, King of the North! And the River Lords shout, King of the Trident! Everyone shouts, pounds their fists on tables and stomps their feet on the ground like a bunch of Philadelphians when a single topping of cheese whiz is brought out and is placed before them. No one really notices Catelyn at first, but as she moves forward, more people give way to her, and the quiet starts to follow her somewhat ominously. She doesn't care about the judgment of these people, though. She only cares about Rob and what he'll say. Catelyn sees Nuncle Brindon on the dais and is comforted by his familiar face, but the squire next to Rob was new. And there were other new faces up with Rob on the dais too. A young knight with seashells and a surcoat, an older knight with three pepper pots, an attractive older woman, and a pretty maid. Who who could these folks be? They seem so nice and cheery. Maybe they're friends? Something? Nothing bad is going to happen from them, right? Catelyn thinks they're prisoners, but then why would Rob bring prisoners up to the dais? Authorized Wayne banged his staff on the floor as Sir Desmond escorted her forward. If Rob looks at me as Edmure did, I, I, I do not know what I will do. But it seemed to her that it was not anger she saw in her son's eyes, but something else. Apprehension, perhaps? No, th th that made no sense. What, what, what should he fear? He was the young wolf, king of the Trident in the north. Brendan greets Catelyn first, pulling Catelyn into his arms for a hug and telling Cat it's good that she, that it's good to see her again. Catelyn, trying not to cry, responds in kind, and then it's time for Catelyn to reunite with Rob. Mother, Catelyn looked at her tall, kingly son. Your grace... I have prayed for your safe return. 
I had heard you were wounded. I took an arrow through the arm while storming the crag, he said. It's healed well, though. I had the best of care. The gods are good, then. Catelyn took a deep breath. Say it. It cannot be avoided. They will have told you what I did. Did they tell you my reasons? For the girls, I had five children. Now I have three. And suddenly, Lord Rickard Carstark is there to accuse Catelyn of robbing him of his vengeance. Cat tells Rickard that killing Jaime wouldn't have brought his sons back, but releasing Jaime may bring Sansa and Arya. Unsurprisingly, Carstark is unappeased. His dead sons deserve better of Catelyn. But then Great John um, Umber tells Rickard to buzz off. It was a mother's folly. Not folly, counters Rickard. Treason. Enough! For just an instant, Rob sounded more like Brandon than his father. No man calls my Lady of Winterfell a traitor in my hearing, Lord Rickard. When he turned to Catelyn, his voice softened. If I could wish the Kingslayer back in chains, I would. You freed him without my knowledge or consent. But what you did, I, I know you did for love. For Arya and Sansa and out of grief for Bran and Rickon. Love's not always wise, I've learned. It could lead us to great folly, but we follow our hearts wherever they take us. Don't we, mother? Is that what I did? If my heart led me into folly, I would gladly make whatever amends I can to bring I can to Lord Carstark and yourself. Again, you're going to be totally shocked to find out that Lord Rickard Carstark is unappeased. He tells Catelyn that his amends that her amends won't help his dead sons, which begs the question whether killing Jamie will help his dead sons as well. Question mark. Regardless, Lord Rickard storms off, and Rob tells everyone to let him go. Also, Catelyn should forgive Rickard. Sure, she's down. Will Rob forgive her? I have. I know what it is, Lord, it is to love so greatly you can think of nothing else. Catelyn bowed her head. Thank you. I have not lost this child, at least. We must talk, Rabanon. You and my uncles of this and other things. Steward, call an end. The River Run session is then called to a halt, and suddenly Catelyn realizes who is missing. Greywind. Where was the direwolf? But before she can ask the question, there's a group of people around her. Lady Mage Mormont tells her that she would have done the same as her. Great John Umber gives her a big bear hug. Galbraith Glover, Jason Malister, and Jonas Bracken are polite, but cool or cold. But Edmure comes up to Catelyn last and tells her that she that he prays for Catelyn's girls. And Catelyn loves Edmure for that. But then everyone stops talking and the great hall was empty except for Rob, Edmure, Brynton, Catelyn, and these six strangers. She asks if these folks are new to Rob. New, said the younger knight, him at the seashells, but fierce in our courage and firm in our loyalties as I hope to prove to you, my lady. Rob looked uncomfortable. Mother, he said, may I present the Lady Sibel, the wife of Lord Gowan Westerling of the Crag. The older woman came forward with a solemn mien. Her husband was one of those we took captive in the Whispering Wood. Rob continues the introductions. There's Sir Rolf Spicer, who sucks, and the children of Lord Gowan and White Lady Sybil. Sir Reynold, a little girl named Elenia, and Rob's new squire, Sir Rolum, or Rob's new squire, Rolum, and Catelyn says she's honored, but a, a little confused about how Rob won the Crag's loyalty. She doesn't doubt that they're here in Riverrun, though, trying to hide from Tywin. The maid came forward last and very shy. Rob took her hand. Mother, he said, I have the great honor to present you the Lady Jane Westerling, Lord Gowan's elder daughter, and my, uh, my, my lady wife. The first thought that flew across Catelyn's mind was, no, that cannot be. You were only a child. The second was, and besides, you have pledged to another. The third was, mother, have mercy. Rob, what have you done? Only then came her belated remembrance. Folly's done for love. He has bagged me neat as a hare in a snare. I seem to have already forgiven him. 
Mixed with her annoyance was a rueful admiration. The scene had been staged with the cunning worthy of a master bummer. Or a king. Catelyn saw no choice but to take Jane Westerling's hands. I have a new daughter, she said more stiffly than she'd intended. She kissed the terrified girl on both cheeks. Be, be welcome to our hall and hearth. Jane says that she'll be a good true wife for Rob and a good queen too. And Catelyn realizes that this girl was a queen now. But she's got good hips for bearing children, right? Right? <laughs> but then Lady Sibel, who sadly will never fall off a cliff into a lake of poison water filled with viper, snark- viper sharks, asks if everyone might take a nap while Cat talks with Rob. The King of the North agrees, and Edmure offers to introduce everyone to his steward. Rollum asks if he has to go if he has to go as he's Rob's squire, and Rob's like, yeah, kid. Rob doesn't need squiring now. Go play Nintendo or see a Star Wars or something. And with that, Catelyn's new family departs. Your wife is lovely, Catelyn said when they were out of earshot. And the Westerlings seem worthy, though Lord Gowan is Tywin Lannister's sworn man, is he not? Yes. Jason Malister captured him in the Whispering Wood and has been holding him in sea guard for ransom. Of course I'll free him now, though he may not wish to join me. We wed without his consent, I fear, and this marriage puts him in dire peril. The crag is not strong. For love of me, Jane may lose all. And you, she said softly, have lost the phrase. Rob winces, and Catelyn realizes now why Purvin Frey and Martin Rivers rolled out of River Run so fast. So the Westerlings bring a lot of swords to Rob's cause? Uh, no, they have 50 soldiers and a dozen knights. Well, that seems like a poor fucking bargain, bargain given that the Freys had a thousand knights and 3,000 infantry that they sent Rob. But Rob retorts that Jane is smart, hot, kind, and gentle, which is not a retort, but I totally understand it as a former 16-year-old boy. It is swords you need, not gentle hearts. How could you do this, Rob? Catelyn thought. How could you be so heedless, so stupid? How could you be so very young? Reproaches would not serve here, however. All she said was, tell me how this came to be. I took her castle, and she took my heart. Rob smiled. The crag was weakly garrisoned, and we took it by storm one night. Black Walder and, and the small John led scaling parties over the walls while I broke the main gate with a ram. I took an arrow in the arm just before Sir Rolf yielded us the castle. It seemed nothing at first, but it festered. Jane had me taken in her own bed, and she nursed me until the fever passed. And she was with me when the great John brought me the news of of Winterfell, Bran, and Rickon. Rob seemed to have trouble saying his brother's names. That night, she she comforted me, mother. Catelyn knows that Rob means that he did the sex act with Jane, and she asks if Rob married her the next day. Proud and miserable, Rob says that he did. It was honorable. She'll be a totally awesome wife. Yeah, maybe, but Waterfrey ain't gonna like it. Rob knows and thinks he's fucked everything up, but the battles anyways, and maybe if he listened to Catelyn about Theon, Brandon Rickon would be alive. Maybe, maybe not, Catelyn counters. But what happened to the phrase? Well, in Rob's opinion, Sir Steveron might have helped out, but of course, Sir Steveron was dead, and Blackwater Frey told Rob that he would like to murder Jane so he could marry one of his sisters again. Wow. Rob would have killed him first, but Jane asked for mercy for Blackwater. You have done House Frey a grievous insult, Rob, Catelyn told her son. Well, Rob didn't mean to insult the Freys, but when the Freys started running, some of his bannermen urged Rob to fight them. But Rob didn't, and that was smart. Rob thought maybe he could marry some of his bannermen off to the Freys, but Catelyn knows that Walter Frey wouldn't take to that. Rob married a girl from a nobler, older house, and that would absolutely salt Lord Frey's wounds. Rob bristled at that. 
The Westerlings were better blood than the Freys. They're an ancient line, descended from the first men. The kings of the rock sometimes wed Westerlings before the conquest, and there was another Jane Westerling who was the queen to, queen Ma- to King Magor 300 years ago. All of which will only salt Lord Walder's wounds, Rob. It has always rankled him that older houses look down on the Freys as upstarts. This insult is not the first he's born to hear him tell it. John Aaron was disinclined to foster his grandsons, and my father refused to offer one of his daughters for Edmure. Catelyn inclined her head toward her brother as he rejoined them. Brindatelli says, hey, folks, maybe we should talk in private, and Rob agrees. He absolutely needs some wine. So they head off to the audience chamber, and Catelyn asks where Greywind is. Is the direwolf okay? Oh, yeah, he's fine. He's totally not dead. Not yet, anyways. He's in the yard with some mutton. But why is he not with Rob? Well, because he's restless these days for some weird reason. Really, but why is he not? But no need to explore why he's all riled up. He's killed a lot of men, and he ain't afraid of men anymore. Jane and her mom are two of the people who are scared of the direwolf. Catelyn realizes that's the real reason that Greywind is not here. It's because of the Westerlings. And she cautions Rob that Greywolf, that Greywind is a part of him. But he killed people at the crag, Ashmark, and at Oxcross? Rob counters, sure, but Summer killed the cat spot at Winterfell, and Cat loves that wolf now. Rob says that's different. Greywind killed a knight that Jane knew, and Greywind doesn't like Sir Rolf Spicer. So what's a king to do? A chill went through Catelyn. Send Sir Rolf away. At once. Where? Back to the crag so the Lannisters can mount his head on a spike. Jane loves him. He's her uncle and a fair knight besides. I need more men like Sir Rolf Spicer, not fewer. I'm not going to banish him because my wolf doesn't seem to like the way he smells. Rob. Catelyn stopped and held his arm. I told you once to keep the ungrate joy close and you did not listen. Listen now. Send this man away. I, I am not saving. I am not saying you need to banish him. Find some task that requires a man of courage, some honorable duty. What it is matters not, but do not keep him near you. Rob asks if Greywind should conduct a smell test of all of his knights, and Catelyn's like, yeah, sounds great. Hire the fucking wolf for the job of the smell test. There were five wolf pups, and the northern gods sent them to her kids. Five wolves for five Starks. No, not five, Rob corrects. Six. John had a wolf as well. The wolves were supposed to be guardians and protectors until... Rob's mouth tightened. Uh, uh, until they... They told me that Theon had murdered Bran and Rickon. Small good their wolves did them. I'm, I'm no longer a boy, mother. I'm a king and I can protect myself. He sighed. I will find some duty for Sir Rolf. Some pretext to send him away. Not, not, not because of his smell, but to ease your mind. You have suffered enough. For once and perhaps the last time, Catelyn is relieved and kisses Rob, thinking that Rob was her boy for a moment and not the king, which is a really awesome writing. They enter Hoster's audience chamber as Rob takes the high seat while Edmure is in mid-conversation telling Sir Brynden Tully about the battle at the stone mill. It was only after the servants had come and gone that the blackfish cleared his throat and said, <clears throat> I-, I think we've heard enough of your... Su- I think we've all heard sufficient of your boasting, nephew. Edmure was taken aback. Boasting? What do you mean? I mean, said the blackfish, that you owe his grace your thanks for his forbearance. He played out that mummer's farce in the Great Hall so as not to shame you before your own people. Had it been me, I would have flayed you for your stupidity rather than praising this folly of the fords. Outraged, Edmure talks about the good men who died, or whether Rob was the only one who was supposed to win glory. Your grace, Rob corrected Icy. You took me for your king, uncle, or have you forgotten that as well? The blackfish said, You were commanded to hold Riverrun, Edmure. No more. I, I, I held Riverrun, and I bloodied Lord Tywin's nose. So you did, said Rob. 
but a bloody nose won't win the war, will it? Did you ever think to ask yourself why we remained in the West Fields so long after Oxcross? You knew well I did not have enough men to threaten Lannisport or Castle Rock. Now playing the stump the chump game, Edmure says um, maybe they were there for castles or, or, or gold or cattle or something. No, dipshit. They wanted Tywin to come west. Wait, wait they, they did? Yeah, you goddamn moron. They had a great plan that you and solely you, Edmure, fucked up royally. We were all a horse, Sir, Sir Brendan said. The Lancer host was mainly foot. We planned to run Lord Tywin and Mary chase up and down the coast, then slip behind him and take up a strong defensive position athwart the gold road at a place my scouts had found where the ground would have been greatly in our favor. If he had come at us, we would have, he would have paid a grievous price. But if he did not attack, he would have been trapped in the West a thousand leagues from where he needed to be. All the while, we would have lived off his land instead of him loving off ours. Meanwhile, Stannis would have attacked King's Landing and defeated Joffrey. They could have totally made a peace then. Don't you feel bad, Edmure? I sure hope that you don't feel like the total fucking failure that you actually are, both Rob and Brendan seem to imply. Edmure looked from uncle to nephew. You never told me. I told you to hold river run said rob what part of that command did you fail to comprehend brendan fills in some more details about the blackwater how edmure's defense allowed tyrell tyrell riders to reach tywin about king's landing then tywin turned his army around and joined with mathis rowan and randall tarley marched to tumbler falls they then met mace tyrell there and the rest of his army boarded barges floated down the river and attacked stannis Catelyn remembers King Renly's court and how it seemed so blissful and innocent. She wonders if that if it would have been better if Rob had fallen to Margie Tyrell's arms. The Tyrells would have made a difference in the war. Edmure looked ill. I never meant. Never, Rob. You, you must let me make amends. I will lead the van in the next battle. For amends, brother? Or for glory, Catelyn wondered. The next battle, Rob said. Well, that'll be soon enough. Once Joffrey is wed, the Lannisters will take the field against me once again. I don't doubt this time the Tyrells will march beside them, and I may need to fight the phrase as well if Blackwater has his way. Catelyn points out that they need to get back north to retake Winterfell and hang Theon Greyjoy in a crow's cage. If Rob refused to follow Catelyn's advice, then he should take off his crown. Stunned at being talked to that way, Rob retorts that he, it, that he wanted to go north, but he didn't think that Theon would harm Bran or Rickon. But all of that is too late. It is too late for ifs and too late for rescues, Catelyn said. All that remains is vengeance. Rob states that the latest news from the North was that Sir Roger Cassell defeated the Ironborn and was getting ready to attack Winterfell. Maybe he's retaken the castle now? Well, no, but it's a nice thought. There had been no news of the utter fucking disaster shit show of the siege of Winterfell. But if Rob goes North, he can't ask the River Lords to go with him. Catelyn agrees, saying the River Lords should defend their own. But there's a big problem. They can't get north with the Ironborn controlling the seas and holding Moat Kaelin. Furthermore, if they march up the causeway, they'll be trapped between the frays of the twins and the Ironborn and Moat Kaelin. They would all die in this extremely cheery scenario. So, what do? We must win back the frays, said Rob. With them, we still have some chance of success, however small. Without them, I see no hope. I am willing to give Lord Walter whatever he requires. Uh, apologies, honors, lands, gold... There must be something that would soothe his pride. Not something, said Catelyn. Someone. And that is the synopsis of A Storm of Swords, Catelyn 2. Oh my goodness, what a fantastic chapter. It's it's chapters like this that helped me initially to fall in love with The Song of Ice and Fire, just due mostly to the political plotting of the story. And it's so good. It's not exactly a hot take to call this the best chapter in Storm of Swords so far. 
Catalan 2 is just so rich. It's a great big brutalist monolith of a chapter, a narrative steamroller that nothing escapes. Catalan 1 was an overture, establishing the tragic structure of this storyline more in terms of mood than plot. It was Catalan and her dying father dreaming of ghosts, haunted by the word tansy. That was the style, and now we get the substance. It's less poetry and more architecture. Catalan 2 provides the foundational blocks for so many of the narrative turns and character developments to come. It reaches back to the Battle of the Fords and Rob's campaign in the Westerlands, but also reaches forward to the Red Wedding and its aftermath. This chapter is a hub, like a central station in a city that everyone has to transfer through to get anywhere. But for all the functional work George has to do here, he never loses sight of the people ground up in the gears, a mother reunited with her son at last, only to discover they've both separately ruined everything forever. <laughs> I mean, obviously, I love this chapter. It's amazing. And back in the day, not too long ago, I had this blog known as The Wars and Politics of Ice and Fire, because when I first came out of reading the series and then rereading it two more times, I really loved the Wars and Politics of Ice and Fire. It, it's in the goddamn name. <laughs> the chapter is damn near the pinnacle of my initial love and interest in writing meta-analysis about the series. There's political gamesmanship, family drama, military strategizing, and a new political plan all in the span of one chapter. Plus, it's hard to believe, but this is the first time that we've seen Rob Stark in the flesh since A Clash of Kings Catelyn won. And as much as Catelyn doesn't camera Rob necessarily in this chapter and continues to be a point of view character, providing her own voice here, the king becomes the main character of this chapter. And I love that dynamic. It activates you in terms of tone even before you get into the specifics, right? This chapter kicks off with a bang to get our attention as well as Catelyn's. All the dogs in River Run howling to herald the return of the king. They're not happy he's back, though. It's the smell of grey wind throwing them off, the fearsome predator, like Arya warging into Nymeria. Rob's status as the young wolf literally and figuratively sets him apart from the pack. And as with Arya, this allows him to lead as a uniquely powerful figure, but it also alienates and isolates him. This ought to feel like a homecoming, but the dogs barking are a reminder that Rob is, in some way, still an outsider here, despite his tully blood and looks. He came down from the north, and we'll die trying to get back there. Power resides where we believe it resides, and that cuts both ways. Grey Wind was a symbol of Rob's strength when his star was rising, but now that it's falling, the dire wolf is something to fear, to resent, even to hate. And this also represents Catelyn's anxiety over what Rob will think of her now, after she set Jamie free. She's been cooped up with her dying and delirious father, knowing that important things are happening, but not knowing what they are, and unable to do anything about them anyway. While Catelyn wants Rob's forgiveness, she also just wants to get the hell out of this room and back into the flow of information in the Game of Thrones. So you could say she could be one of those barking dogs. They're expressing her emotions. His arrival will provide the necessary catharsis. Get it all in the open, for better or for worse. This is the moment she is both dreamt of and dreaded, George writes. Her fears and desires coming crashing together around her last son, or so she thinks. Has she lost him too? She won't be able to bear it if Rob hates her now, her firstborn who came into the world red-faced and squalling. She's losing her father. Her brother won't talk to her. Let my little boy still love me. But he's more than her little boy now. And Catelyn only realizes that because they've been apart for so long. 
When your loved ones are around you all the time, every day, you might not notice them changing. When they go away and come back, suddenly the aging process becomes tangible, undeniable. Rob has grown up. War has melted the softness off him, she thinks. A perfect metaphor that echoes the last time John saw Rob, the snowflakes melting in his fiery red hair. Now, Rob has melted. He's gone through the crucible and been reforged as something lean and hard, like a sword or a dick. We haven't seen him in a long time either, of course. Rob was off page for most of Clash of Kings. George has said he regrets that, and I get why. Like, you know, it's a long time without him. You could have done some interesting things with him, I guess. But I don't know. I think that gap actually makes this chapter better. Partially, I think it works just because it preserves the surprise of his marriage, so then we get that revelation in this chapter. But it's also because it makes us stop and reckon with the change, just like his mother has to. Last time we saw the king in the north, the teenage prodigy who was going to win the war and make everything okay again, he was uncomfortable with his new crown, always shifting it around on his head. Now, he wears it comfortably. Remember what Cyrio Pharrell said to Arya about how she has to think of the sword as part of her arm? Because you can't drop your arm. Rob has come to feel the same way about his crown. He can't take it off any more than he could take off the weary head beneath it. He bears it like a king, Catelyn thinks. And the irony is that he has only grown into his kingdom here and now, as things fall apart. Along the same lines, Rob fully comes into his own as a character in Storm of Swords, which is what makes it so painful and effective when George rips him away from us along with his mother. Rob already stood out as George's young hotshot who could do no wrong. He's an Edward IV analog. His father was beheaded, he had a claim to an ancient crown, a flawless record on the battlefield, and now we get the rest of that story, the unwise marriage and the <laughs> resulting betrayal from his vassals. Rob isn't just a historical archetype, he's also a tragic figure in this story, whose fall we have to feel as well as understand. When Catelyn looks at his mail, rusted by the rain, she wonders for a moment if it's blood. And by the end of her story in this book, it will be. It's as though the future is bleeding, you could say, into the present. Rob's doom ushering him into the grave, no matter how proper a king he looks. That shapeless dread will be given form when Catelyn learns Rob got married, but the tone of tragedy is already there in the rain, in her father's dying whispers, in the color palette of these chapters, all black and white and gray. This already feels like a funeral procession. Rob already feels like a dead man. Is he, though? Is he doomed by destiny, or does he doom himself? That's the core mystery of so much tragedy. Who makes the world? Are we responsible for our fates, or is it the gods? In one corner, you got Oedipus declaring that the greatest griefs are those we cause ourselves. In the other corner, Jocasta says that chance rules our lives. Rob makes clear mistakes, but he also has bad luck. Sometimes the bad luck makes his mistakes worse than they would have otherwise been. Some of his mistakes are made in response to the bad luck. It's an Ouroboros eating itself. If only we could reconcile ourselves to one extreme or the other, we might find peace. As self-actualized souls in charge of our lives, or as meat puppets. As gods or as beasts. Instead, we're condemned to live and die in between. And the agony of uncertainty can feel worse than any literal curse from above. Look at how Rob blames himself for everything in this chapter, saying it would have worked out, oh, if he'd only listened to Catelyn and not sent Theon home. And many readers do agree with that, but Catelyn herself doesn't. Instead of saying, I told you so, as she could have, she points out that, hey, Balin Greyjoy might have gone ahead and invaded the North anyway, even if you hadn't sent Theon. And I think she's right. Balin didn't give a rat's ass about Theon. He was already amassing his forces before Theon showed up. 
The point is that we have no idea what would have changed if Rob had done this differently or done that differently, and we never will. In our desperate desire to control that which can't be controlled, we end up ruining that which is in our control. And that's a huge part of tragedy. Characters misunderstanding their own relationship to the world, manifesting as a series of disturbances in which they feel left behind by time itself. Rob Stark's return to the narrative of A Song of Ice and Fire is one of the more fascinating and underloved parts, or not underloved, but but understudied parts of the writing of A Storm of Swords. Because George R. R. Martin has said that he regretted not making Rob as a point of view, and I agree with you, that wasn't a mistake. And the reason why it's not a mistake is that Rob's return in A Storm of Swords is like a loose end of the narrative rejoining the story. It's a thread returning back to the sweater. A Clash of Kings was all about new characters and settings like Dragonstone, Stannis and Davos, or putting familiar characters into new circumstances. For instance, Catelyn as an envoy to Renly, Tyrion as Hand of the King. All the while, Rob was out in the Westerlands performing exactly as he did in A Game of Thrones, just running through the Lancers, kicking their ass so hard through incredible feats on the battlefield, and I love it. Rob's return in A Song of Ice and Fire is sequenced precisely so that he's thrust back into the narrative at the moment that everything has changed. Or has it? Seen through the prism of writing, Rob's return to the narrative is similar to what was seen towards the late middle of A Game of Thrones, where everything looked hopeless for the Starks. The Lancers have Ned Stark of the Dungeons. Sansa's writing letters asking Rob and Catelyn to swear to Joffrey. The Lancers have two large armies in the field threatening Riverrun in the north. But what we saw happen with Rob then is that he came away with a masterful military strategy, dividing his army and winning glorious victories at the Whispering Wood and the camps outside of Riverrun. A subtle genius, I think, in A Storm of Swords is that George kind of gives us this idea of priming the reader to think that he's going to do a redux of that earlier dynamic of the Starks winning crushing victories despite the massive odds stacked against them. As we progress into Rob Stark's story in A Storm of Swords, George seeds the narrative ground that Rob will perform the impossible yet again. Take both Kaelin and drive the Ironborn out of the north. Glorious victory all around. But in this case, in A Storm of Swords, George R. R. Martin has removed his hand of protection from Rob and Catelyn. And it was something that he was plotting all the way back from before all time, as he told Entertainment Weekly in 2013. I killed Ned because everyone thinks he's the hero, and that's sure he's going to get into trouble. But then he'll somehow get out of it. The next spiritual thing is to think his elder son is going to rise up and avenge his father. And everybody's going to expect that. So immediately, killing Rob became the next thing I had to do. What makes for a perfect tragedy is the element of hope. A hope outlined against the faint edges of realism and a hope that gets dashed. Catelyn starts this chapter hopeful and fearful, knowing that Rob has returned to River Run. And yet, as you were saying, the weather provides the mood for the chapter. It's raining hard. And that rain is not going to stop until Catelyn 7 of A Storm of Swords, until the end of Catelyn's living story. The narrative knows that this is the curtain call for Rob Stark, and it mourns for the dead king writing, even if the characters in the story try to fight fate and fail. Oh, I love that. Hope outlined against the faint edges of realism. That's just, uh, that's just beautiful. That's, that's exactly the tone here. So Catelyn is going into this next scene expecting dreading that Rob is going to treat her with contempt and scorn. As it turns out, though, Rob is, if anything, even more anxious about her getting mad at him, because he screwed up worse than she did. Your first time reading this, I think all you can really do is process the shock of Rob's marriage. On reread, you can see the masterful construction of this scene. Rob is so afraid of how his mom is going to react to this that he puts it off as long as possible, slow rolling the reveal to such an extent that it becomes comical. 
but he's also stretching out Catalin's anxiety to an agonizing degree, as she notices every detail suggesting something is off, without knowing what until Rob forces himself to say it out loud. And we haven't seen much of Catalin's keen political mind in her last couple chapters. At the end of Clash with Jamie in his cell, and at the start of A Storm of Swords with her first chapter, she's much more kind of inwardly focused. It's just a couple people in a room. Now the scope of her POV is widening again, to match Rob's return to the game board, and we can see how she analyzes all the pieces at play. First, she mentions in this chapter seeing men leave Riverrun, an ominous sign, like rats off a ship. Worse, they trample the direwolf banner on the way out. So this isn't just about their desperate position after the Blackwater. Even Edmure was rattled by that. This is something uglier. A rejection. A promise of violence. When we talk about the timeline of A Song of Ice and Fire, this is interesting because the phrase bugging out of River Run is sequenced immediately after events from Catlin 1, as it's said that the phrase rolled out the day Edmure arrived back from the Fords. When we covered Catlin 1, I made the offhanded theory during our theory discussion that I wonder whether Vyman found out that Rob had gotten married and that was the information that he kept from Catlin. I think this is a clue that the letter that Edmure received contained information about Rob's wounding at the crag, but that letter also contained information about Rob's marriage to Jane Westerling. They're not sending many birds back and forth from the crag to River Run. They probably had the same message embedded in, in itself. I mean, we didn't get, we, there was no message that came back saying that Rob was, well, at least we know that Rob was returning from the crag. So yeah, it had to probably be one message. Probably all the big news of the day. So if the phrase rolled out immediately after arriving back at River Run, that means that the information of Rob's marriage arrived at River Run prior to Rob's return. For that matter, we know that the information also traveled to Harrenhal, as Elmer Frey talks about his house being so dishonored by Arya when Arya witnesses it. So yes, long story short, Vyman, as well as Edmure, dirtily kept the secret of Rob's marriage from Catelyn until the king arrived back at River Run. Now, I kind of wonder what, if this was done at Rob's explicit command in the letter, or whether Vyman and Edmure spent a nervous 15 minutes kind of like looking at each other in silence before Edmure or Vyman said, look, dude, I ain't going to be the one to tell her. You tell her. No, no, I ain't going to be the one to tell her. Fuck it, let Rob tell her. We have this kind of stuff taking place chronologically before the chapter. These letters coming in that Catelyn can't access, she's seeing men from afar, and then within the chapter, Catelyn sees strangers up on the dais with Rob. She glances across each one in turn, focusing on their sigils, though she doesn't know them. And why should she? They're Westerland sigils after all. She figures that out right away, and reasonably guesses that they're prisoners. But then why are they up there, within arm's reach of the king, looking down at her? It's an inversion that signals many more inversions to come, right up through the Red Wedding. All the rules Catalin knows and believes in, brought to the breaking point by all she's seen and lost, finally give way. Here are the Westerlings, the enemy hiding in plain sight, the call coming from inside the house, in-laws as poisonous as the Tyrells are for Joffrey. They're not only strangers, they are THE stranger. The god of death, Catelyn stared down in the Stormlands, come to claim her son as Stannis threatened. While she was away, Rob gave up the keys to the kingdom. So when he finally meets her eyes, he suddenly doesn't look like the young wolf anymore, the flawless warrior king who stepped out of the songs. He looks like her son, and he looks afraid. As well he should, not of her, but of what he's done, and how it's going to combine with several other factors to bring him down. As Aragorn says in Lord of the Rings, Rob is not nearly frightened enough. Right before it all goes wrong, though, George pauses to let the blackfish be the blackfish. He leaps down and hugs her, telling her, ugh, it's just good to see her home. 
Fuck the politics of this moment. Fuck the strained silence of secrets. What keeps us going through all that is love. Missing each other, and then seeing each other again. No wonder Catalin struggles to keep her composure in this moment, because this hug, this is everything she had thought she'd lost. So then, only then, does Catelyn have the courage to face Rob. And this is one of my favorite relationships in the series, as I've said before. I just, I think it's so realistically written. They love each other deeply. They each define themselves by the other in large part. Yet they also get under each other's skin constantly. And intimacy is the cause of both sides of the coin there. I always think of that moment in the show. I think it's in the very first episode of the show when they're feasting in the Great Hall and Arya's like throwing stuff at Sansa. And Catelyn tells Rob to get Arya the hell out of there, just with her eyes, just by looking at him and raising her eyebrows. And it's just, it's absolutely perfect. They just know each other so well, which means they can see through each other's performances, which they both find super annoying. (laughs) And, you know, being that close to someone, I think, is just inherently painful at some level. I think just, you know, intimacy, even in the best relationships, it just comes with a cost. And that's compounded by their political roles. Rob is a young king whose rule is tied to his performance of martial masculinity. He's not the kind of guy who's supposed to be listening to his mom in terms of the role he plays in public. Catelyn, meanwhile, has always been a player within what space she had. And she is used to it being restricted, but not by her red-faced baby boy. I think it felt right at some level for Catelyn to take orders from her dad, because Hoster was a mythic figure whose idealized image is only now coming apart at the seams. Rob, though? She remembers him as an infant, and then a boy with a wooden sword. She can't possibly project onto him like the others do, and he knows that. So how can he bring himself to punish her as her king? It feels like she's just going to say, yeah, I remember when you you would drop your breakfast everywhere and I would shake my finger at you, (laughs) but now you're going to tell me about the law? It just, you know, there's an inherent disconnect there. And I think the disconnect is really good because we're we're, we're brought face to face with their relationship and how people who love each other can still look at each other and be like, man, I love you, but you are just really getting under my skin right now. And I, I think that that's such a, an interesting and fascinating dynamic. I think, too, uh, beyond the revelation that Rob is about to drop on Catelyn, there are a few mentions made here in Catelyn 2 and in successive Catelyn chapters that no one speaks to Rob the way that Catelyn does because she's his mom and that's the way that moms sometimes can be with their sons as much as the great john umber mage mormont galbert glover and others are framed heroically they're heroically coded characters anyways their viewpoint of rob is as their king the guy they have to listen to even brendan tully who was of course named after me <laughs> sees rob as a war leader first and then a king rather than a nephew as he's going to remind edmure at the end of the chapter and that makes sense given that brendan wasn't in winterfell when rob grew up he was banning the bloody gates, says the Knight of the Gate, and only met a teenage Rob Stark at Moat Kaelin after the banners had been called. For Catelyn and Rob, the intimacy, as you said, drives the relationship. Rob was Catelyn's baby, her son, her boy first before he became a war leader and a king. That gives Catelyn a unique relationship to Rob in that she can call him out for acting foolishly or tell him he's, or tell him he's making a mistake. There's an intimidation that Catelyn brings as the sole authority figure who can contradict Rob. In other words, the bonds of blood go deeper than the bonds of political kinship. And that deepness can sometimes be felt in a mom chiding a wayward son. It, I guess it helps Rob. It breaks the ice anyway that Rickard Karstark then elbows his way in <laughs> to make the prosecutor's case against Catelyn in the most narrow-minded way possible. You betrayed <laughs> me and my dead sons. That's really not the point. 
Like the case against Catelyn, <laughs> the case against Catelyn is that she gave away a major asset who they could have used to sue for peace. And she really had no way of making good on getting the girls back beyond Jamie saying he was going to do it. Both Catelyn and Lord Karstark have lost children. And both of them are motivated by grief, heedless of the political fallout of their actions. Lord Karstark calls Catelyn a traitor, but he also says that she robbed him of vengeance by letting Jamie go, implying that he was planning on killing Jamie at some point, which would be as treasonous as releasing him. So Karstark is not some, like, objectively righteous enforcer of the rules. He's not like a judge looking at the rule book here. He is a loose cannon in his own right, a dying star sucking them all in. And Rob picks up on that. Suddenly, ice returns to his voice. Because for Karstark, to publicly call Rob's mom a traitor is a challenge to Rob's authority. Rob has such a delicate needle to thread here. He has to condemn Catelyn's actions without condemning her. And he has to justify that to his lords. Ironically, Catelyn is protected by the very gender roles she defied by freeing Jamie, because the great John isn't mad at her. He writes this all off as a mother's madness, just one of those inexplicable things that women do. And Rob, <laughs> he kind of backs that up because it's convenient in the moment. He says that love led his mother into folly. Whether he actually believes that isn't as important as his stealth confession. Love led me into folly as well. Love's not wise, he says he has learned. And that's a, that's a kind of a theme you can see echoing throughout the story. Cersei said uh, to Sansa in the second book that love is poison. Maester Aemon said to John in the first book that love is the death of duty. And that push and pull between the demands of power and the demands of the heart is what defines the tragic downfall of House Stark. You're alluding to something which I think is really interesting because, you know, so many people like to look at Rob Stark as just being this big old dumb dumb, right? <laughs> He's so dumb. Look at all the dumb shit that Rob Stark did. And a lot of that is honestly influenced by Game of Thrones, the TV series, which you may or may not have heard of, which does have that dynamic inherent within it. And yet at the same time, this is an instance where Rob Stark is acting smart and operates politically smart, even in the midst of tragedy. If anything, Rob is doing smart, that Rob is doing smart politics only compounds the wings of tragedy unfolding the Starks. Now, now there are several examples of the smart Rob dynamic that we see here, but this one is my favorite. He gets Catelyn to forgive him for marrying Jane before he reveals what he did. But since Catelyn points this out later in the chapter, that's, that's kind of in text and we'll cover that a little bit later. What's more subtle is that Rob Stark puts his mother's actions in a politically understandable lens for his vassal lords. If Rob framed the action as Catelyn freeing Jamie for his girls in a clear-headed political calculus, the way that she did it anyways, the reaction from his Lord's Bannerman would be entirely negative. However, in framing Catelyn as doing what she did out of love, Rob puts Catelyn's actions within a socially acceptable framework. Rob openly states in court that Catelyn was acting out of a mother's grief, out of an irrational love for her children, not out of political calculation. This is important because it gives his mom an out in front of these battle-hardened Northmen and Riverlords. It's also not precisely the truth, as Mage Mormont points out, that she would have done the exact same to get her girls back. And as flawed as Catelyn's actions, action was, or wasn't depending on your perspective in freeing Jamie, it was not a moment of irrationality. It was political calculation. That Rob doesn't call that to mind allows Catelyn to avoid being labeled a traitor by everyone save for that asshole Rickard Karstark. Yeah, it is playing into the misogyny inherent within the feudal system, but it works to dull the blade for most of the North End Rivermen. Save again for that asshole, Rickard Karstark. 
You can sense Rob just like, I want to get out of this room so I can actually talk to you. <laughs> I want to get to the stairwell and then the, the audience chamber. But like, I can't, I can't communicate honestly here. This is inherently, there's just this artifice to this. And Catalan's kind of going through the same process and wondering who these other people on the dais were. She first interprets the Westerlings purely through the lens of politics. Okay, so these are Tywin's vassals. Has Rob somehow won them to his side? And she knows enough to realize that really doesn't make sense. No one is going to willingly sell out Tywin. He is known for repaying betrayal with brutality ever since the reigns of Castamir. And that's such a chilling moment on reread as Catelyn comes so close to the terrible truth, brushing up against her own doom without knowing it. Everyone has just a bit, just a little bit of the information. We'll see like the flip side to this in the next Tyrion chapter when he finds out that Rob has married Jane Westerling. And he says to Dad... Dad, that really doesn't make sense that your vassal would betray you like that. They know who you are, right? And Tywin almost smiles and almost gives it all away like, they haven't betrayed me at all, son. I got a whole plan. But, he, you know, of course, he's not going to explain it. But it's that same thing where people smart enough realize that doesn't – there has to be a motive there. That doesn't, that doesn't quite add up, but we don't, we, don't, uh, we don't know enough until it's too late. So as Catelyn senses the end, George finally reveals the means, his magic trick complete. Rob has nothing left to hide behind and just has to say, Mom – I got married. And probably my favorite part of this chapter is how Catelyn reacts to that. She goes through so many thoughts and feelings so quickly. It's complicated, but that's exactly what makes it so relatable. She doesn't feel one way about this. And I think most parents uh, feel many ways about their, their kids getting married or moving up in life in many different ways. Catelyn's first thought has nothing to do with the politics, the potential fallout for her king and her cause. None of that. She reacts as a mother. No, you can't get married. You're a child. You're an infant. You're far too young. Part of her wants to save him from aging and adulthood, which is basically trying to save him from death. And she can't do that. No parent can. Not even kings can turn back time. Rob will never be the boy with a wooden sword again. And that would be true even if he lived to a ripe, happy old age. Hoster will never recognize Catelyn again. Lysa will never be part of their family again. Ned's bones, as Catelyn thought, are no substitute for the man himself. I think there also might be a kind of a psychosexual dynamic at work under the scenes here. Like, Rob has gone from the babe at Catelyn's breast to a man capable of acting on his own sexual desires. And Catelyn immediately takes notes of Jane's birthing hips. Both Jane and Rob will talk kind of obliquely to Catelyn about their sex life as the book goes on, because it doesn't belong only to them. It's not, you know, you want to think of sex as being the most private, intimate thing there is, but in this position of power, and really kind of just in general, often it just ends up being part of your community and part of your family. The personal is political. And so Catelyn's reaction switches when she looks at Rob as a king instead of her son. You promised another. You made a marriage pact with the phrase for their military support, and then you broke it. Both thoughts together give birth to the third, which is one of pure terror. Mother, have mercy. What have you done? But the mother won't have mercy on Rob. Catelyn, a mother herself, will be forced to watch her son die. Catelyn is just about to vent her anger and fear when her brain catches up, and she realizes what all that talk about love and folly was really about. Despite being her baby boy, and despite having fucked up real bad this time, Rob manages to outplay his mother so well, it impresses even her. It's like, I remember um, once playing a, a game of chess with a Zach Louie from, uh, from Game of Owns. And it was a long game. And I had him on the ropes. The ropes, I tell you. And then he came back and beat me. And at the end, I was like, wow, I'm, not, I'm just impressed. That was, that was just so artful how well you d destroyed me there. And kind of Catelyn has that, that same kind of bittersweet thought here. 
Rob cloaked his betrayal in hers, getting her to agree to an equivalence without her realizing it. He forgives her in such a way that he also manages to forgive himself. As Catelyn thinks, Rob has staged this scene like a master mummer, or like a king. Those roles have a lot in common. It's all about performance. Beneath that, unfortunately, it's, it's just a plain fact that, as Catelyn says, Rob has lost the phrase. And now she understands why those men trampled on his banner on their way out of Riverrun, because, you know, their feeling is that's what he did to us, so we're going we're gonna to show that off symbolically. The personal and political keep playing off each other here. Rob says that Jane, as a person, is bright. She's kind, with a gentle heart. She's basically a perfect queen. Rob just needs more than a nice individual by his side. He needs soldiers. And in that regard, Jane's dowry is pitiful compared to the phrase. The phrase brought thousands of soldiers to Rob's campaign. The Westerlings? Dozens. If Rob was an ordinary man, heir to nothing, he might be able to follow his heart. But in this regard, his power makes him less free, not more. He frames it romantically. I took her castle and she took my heart. You can almost hear him breaking into song. It's an appropriate comparison, because breaking his marriage pact is an act of war. And there are collective responsibilities that he ignored for her sake. It's of interest to hear that Rob's first salvo is to run a similar game plan with Catelyn as he did with his Lord's Bannerman, because he was the romantic chivalrous lord who fell in love. What I'm saying is that Rob Stark grew up listening to the same chivalric romantic stories that Sansa did. Mm -hmm. The thing is to remember that there's an audience here when Rob is telling Catelyn the first version of a story. Later, when he and Catelyn are alone, his tune changes rather dramatically because he reveals the real truth about why he married Jane. So much of Rob does when he's in a group setting is do a great job of playing image politics, of playing to type, of showing himself as being this kind of heroic, charismatic warrior type. Because Rob knows that he's fucked up badly by marrying Jane Westerling, but he works hard to get the image politics correct at least in front of his betterman, not so much with his mom. That's a great comparison because, yeah, he's, he's making use of the same romantic imagery that Sansa does. And it's a reminder that the uh, romanticism is not as gendered a thing as some people might assume. I think it's men and women are encouraged to relate differently to that image, but they're still supposed to relate to it. And I think you can see that within the Stark family, that the younger kids, Bran and Arya, hate the kissing part of the stories, both of them. But Rob and Sansa are a little older, and they kind of they kind of understand the appeal, or at least Sansa's already starting to understand the appeal in her own right of, of, of that kind of allure. And so I was, I was talking about, you know, just uh, reducing each potential spouse for Rob to the amount of swords they bring to the table. And it's not like individuals don't matter. As Rob says, he might have been able to smooth things over with Steveron Frey, one of the more reasonable Freys, the heir to the twins... But he died for Rob at the Battle of Oxcross. And so Rob was left with Steveron's son, Ryman, who is stubborn as a mule and much less intelligent. Not to mention Ryman's son, Black Walder, one of the worst Freys, a vicious cutthroat who actually had the nerve to propose that Rob kill Jane in order to free himself up to marry a Frey. Rob does have a backup plan in mind. As Jeff was saying earlier, he's not actually just blundering around like a bull in a china shop. He's, he's got some ideas. He wants to offer the phrase marriage packs with the Umbers and the Manderleys. But it again runs aground on individuals, namely Lord Walder Frey. Catelyn points out that Walder isn't going to be any more reasonable than Ryman or Black Walder. He's prickly and proud, and Rob has insulted that pride, not only by breaking his vow, but by doing so with an older house. The older houses have always looked down on the phrase including, you know, us, the Tullys, the people in this room. <laughs> so much is feeding into this moment. Individual personalities, but also grudges that have lasted generations. 
You got the demands of chivalry and also the demands of kingship. Even Rob's decision to marry Jane was more than the momentary impulse of a horny teenager. He was motivated by grief and by guilt. He had just learned that his little brothers were dead, murdered by Theon, who had been as close to him as another brother. So sex was... Sex was his way of keeping their ghosts at bay, for a little while anyway. In other words, it's the exact same reason Catelyn freed Jaime, trying to find something to live for as the walls closed in around her. Mother and son both got in bed with the enemy. Rob just did so literally. They're two halves <laughs> of a whole. Only put together do they spell certain doom. Catelyn thinks Rob is behaving like a child, but she doesn't reckon with how she might have influenced his decision. Where did Rob get the idea that marrying Jane would be the only honorable course? Well, from Catelyn. She's the one who made clear to her children that there was nothing worse than fathering a bastard, because it hurt her so much that Ned brought John home to raise as his own son. And her, her instilling that lesson in her kids, while it seemed to make sense to her, now it's backfired. It all goes back and back, like Tyrion says, right, to our parents and those before them. And you can't easily unravel those tangled webs. It's, it's, it's kind of difficult to say really who's responsible for this in the end. And of all these signifiers of doom, probably the most potent is Grey Wind's absence. As Catelyn says, the wolf is Rob, and Rob is the wolf. That the Westerlings fear Grey Wind, that they have in a sense replaced him, sends chills down Catelyn's spine. Like her, the wolf senses death just around the corner. He knows that Rob's in-laws, nah, they're not part of the pack. Rob insists on being rational about this, and it's hard to disagree with him. Like, Grey Wind has killed a lot of people. It's natural to be afraid of him. Is he really supposed to run his kingdom on the basis of how people smell to his wolf? Should he have all the lords line up to get sniffed by Grey Wind before they get to stay around? You see his point. But there is something deeper at work with Rob's rejection of his other half. Catelyn says the gods sent the wolves to protect her children. Rob says he agreed until they told him that Bran and Rickon were dead. Their wolves didn't protect them, so it's silly to think that Grey Wind is going to protect him. And this is so heartbreaking, because the reader knows that Bran and Rickon aren't dead at all, and that their wolves did protect them by laying a false trail for Theon. If Rob knew that, he might have kept Grey Wind with him. But then again, if Rob knew that, he wouldn't have slept with and then married Jane in the first place. If it was known that Bran and Rickon survived, that might even prevent Rob's death. He'd have male heirs. He wouldn't be in as much of a hurry to get back to North. Get back to the North. Context for the Red Wedding changes a lot. Incomplete information. That's that's essential to tragedy. People act on what they think they know, finding out the truth too late, if ever. Rob knows just enough to get him killed, and Catelyn knows just enough to see it coming. Neither Rob nor Catelyn knows enough to stop it, so in spite of their choices, their downfall kind of feels like a runaway train in which they're just along for the ride. So now the characters stop fighting about what Rob did and start fighting about what Edmure did. <laughs> and as we were saying at the top of the episode, we're going to talk a lot more about the strategy implications, who did what wrong, in our Patreon episode later this month. Here, I want to focus on the character dynamics and the overall sense of doom, both proceeding naturally from the previous scene. Edmure is the only one having a good time in this chapter. He's the only one bragging. Rob, Catelyn, and even Hoster are all stricken by what they've done. But Edmure's on top of the world. Edmure's doing great, according to Edmure. So you just know he's headed for a smackdown. And indeed, Rob and the Blackfish proceed to fillet Edmure like the fish on his banner. When Catelyn first came into the Great Hall, Rob was in the middle of praising Edmure for his valiance at the Battle of the Fords. Good job, uncle. 
Now the Blackfish says that was a mummer's farce, exactly as Catelyn described how Rob revealed the news of his marriage to her, like a master mummer at work. Rob has gotten pretty good at the public performance of power, but only because the private realities are so bleak that he has to work overtime to spin them. Edmure, meanwhile, is totally lost in the performance. He thinks they're only mad at him because they won all the victories, all the glory. I bloodied Lord Tywin's nose, he insists. I won the battle. That's all that matters. I proved myself to my father. Edmure thinks Rob and the Blackfish stayed in the Westerlands so long for plunder, because that's how he thinks about war. It's a shiny object. Edmure tried to grasp a star, overreached, and fell. In the process of trying to be the hero and save the day, he inadvertently contributed to their doom. To be fair to Edmure, when Brendan starts challenging Edmure, Edmure's first reaction is to talk about the men who died on the ford. Good men died to defend those fords, uncle. You can feel the emotion in his voice. I, I think this is where Rob and Brendan let the mask slip about their real thoughts about Edmure. So far, Rob has done a great job of praising in public and criticizing in private, really taking after his mom and who, in that, who doesn't criticize Rob until they're ascending the staircase and alone. However, this Brendan-Rob, eventually Catelyn dynamic of berating Edmure gets under Edmure's skin real quick. As much as this is a private setting between relatives, we have to consider the power dynamics it works because these three individuals who are tearing Edmure a new one are the only people in the entire world who intimidate Edmure, besides Hoster, I guess, who is currently uh, somewhat comatose. Rob was Edmure's king first, and while Rob was young, he was also the guy who beat Jamie Lannister where Edmure failed, and he had won every battle so far. Edmure's reputation on the battlefield is a little mixed, shall we say. Brynden, despite being down the line of Tully's succession, plays an authority role over Edmure given his age and his exploits as far back as the War of the Ninepenny Kings. Catelyn was the heir to Riverrun for many years and was Hoster's favorite child until the bitter end. The point is that Edmure gets awful defensive because he's being criticized by people who make him feel insecure, and he feels like he's being scolded by his betters. As a result, Edmure comes off here sounding peevish, almost kind of boyish. He just wants someone to tell him, good job, bro, nephew, uncle, and mean it, a version of Tyrion's attempts to get his family to love him. It also explains why Edmure chooses the company of vassal heirs as friends and is described as a womanizer. He's seeking the love from people who can't sincerely criticize him given their subservient roles in Westerosi feudalism, or he tries to get that love from tavern wenches and sex workers that he really didn't get from his family. Catelyn picks up that Edmure sounds outraged, and Catelyn just knows her brother all too well. She knows what's really going into the emotional defense of his actions. Because the Tullys actually love each other, as opposed to the Lannisters, who like may proclaim outward senses of affection and love for each other, but deep downside truly don't like each other. And Catelyn is immediately proved correct about Edmure sounding defensive and wanting to ascertain the love of his family when Edmure lunches for a second, much less defensible line uh, in terms of what he did. Is no one to win battles but the young wolf? I mean, Edmure's sin obviously is pride, and he wants and desires glory stemming from that pride. But the reason why Edmure desires that glory is because of what he told Catelyn, as you were alluding to, Emmett, when he set off for the fords back in A Clash of Kings. Tell father I have gone to make him proud. There's a lot of focus on the mega tragedy of the Stark cause, but I think if we look at the mini tragedies leading up to that mega tragedy, it gives a wider horizon to the narrative dynamic at work. Edmure, desperate to gain his father's love and affection, led an ill-fated defeat by Jamie Lannister back in A Game of Thrones. That led again to his desire to give battle to Tywin Lannister in A Clash of Kings. And now it's led to disaster for Edmure, for the Starks, 
for everyone. Everyone gets a disaster. Everyone gets a disaster. And even now that Edmure knows that, he's still kind of got his head in the clouds. He offers to lead the vanguard in the next battle. As Catalan thinks, this really isn't about making up for what he did. He's still chasing glory, despite the revelation of the cost. And now we finally get the full story of how the Battle of Blackwater came to be. Edmure delayed Tywin just long enough for the Tyrells to reach him with news that Stannis had taken Storm's End and was marching on the capital. That's what allowed Tywin and the Tyrells to reach the city in time. As with Rob's marriage, the first time I was reading this, all I could do was process the shock. I remember that dread settling in my stomach. I wasn't wise enough yet to spot all the Red Wedding foreshadowing in detail, but I could still tell that Rob was in deep, deep trouble. On reread, I love how there's not just one cause for Rob's downfall. Really, all these pieces had to be in place, because they came so close to victory in Clash of Kings. As Rob says, Stannis might have rid them of the Lannisters in one stroke. As Catelyn thinks, ugh, Rob might have married Marjorie instead of Jane, and then all would be well. Those happy AUs passed them by like ships in the night. They're stuck in a world where they all screwed up. Edmure contributed to a Lannister victory. Catelyn gave away their only way to sue for peace. Rob alienated the phrase when they need their help to get to the north. But even as George draws our attention to the phrase with one hand, he distracts us with the other, positioning the phrase as nothing more than a literal bridge back home to fight the real enemy, the Ironborn. And this chapter tells us, Rob, you've made enemies out of the phrase. They're no longer on your side. So George knows, okay, but I don't want to just give away that the Freys are going to attack Rob violently. I want that to still be a surprise. And so he sets up sets up the, uh, the Greyjoys. Catelyn tells Rob Theon has to come first, because the loss of his home and his brothers is an existential challenge to his authority. And we'll see evidence of that in her very next chapter, when Rickard Karstark calls Rob the king who lost the North. Once again, incomplete information is what makes this possible. We know that Bran and Rickon are alive, that Theon has already fallen, and that Winterfell has been sacked not by the Ironborn, but by Ramsay. It's powerful dramatic irony. We want to reach into the page and tell them the truth. A feeling that will only increase when lame Lothar Frey shows up to deliver a highly selective interpretation of the news <laughs> from the North. But there's also a lot that we don't know the first time through. We don't know that Roos has already made a deal with Tywin, and we don't know that... There's really nothing Rob can do to win the phrase back now. By the end of the chapter, his doom is already sealed. So I mentioned at the start of this episode that I love this chapter because it is so focused on the political maneuvering and the military strategizing of what's happening in this in the, in the Riverlands and in the north and what's going on in the Greer Hole of Westeros. And a lot of this really reminds me of a small council scene at the end of this chapter with various people bringing pieces of information together and debating how to proceed with this information based on analysis. And a lot of the debate centers over what now, brown cow? I don't think that's how that phrase actually goes. But Rob is trying to reach an informed decision on what he needs to do next. And he's faced with really two Bad choices. Bad choice number one, stay in the Riverlands, prepare for the oncoming Lannisters and Tyrells who will be moving forward after Joffrey's wedding to Marjorie. This seems a poor choice on initial blush, like absolutely dismiss this given that Rob will need to face overwhelming odds. But there are some actual military advantages of staying put in the Riverlands. First, the Stark Tully forces hold all of the key terrain in the Riverlands. Edmure's men hold the fords, Roose Bolton has Harrenhal, and Rob isn't facing any organized threat from the West presently. So any attack by an overwhelming force could be mitigated by concentrating the army on key terrain, the fords like Edmure did, as well as holding Harrenhal. More than that, staying in the Riverlands keeps the Riverlords loyal to Rob and willing to hold the line with the Northmen. 
But those are the military advantages. There are severe political disadvantages to staying in the Riverlands. The Northmen, as stalwart as many of them seem, have had their own lands attacked by the Ironborn. And while I would argue that there are still enough military-aged Northmen in the North proper to retake the North, there's a lot of North in that sentence, there are issues of quarreling lords and outright disloyalty and treason. The Mandalese may have the largest land force in the North currently, but those that didn't die at Winterfell are presently engaged in fighting the Boltons over Hornwood lands, rather than focusing on the Ironborn threat at Deepwood Mott and Mokan Lake. Seriously, guys, get your shit together. Most of the real Stark loyalists perished at Winterfell when Ramsay Snow showed up with his host to smash the mostly Serwin, Tallheart, Hornwood, and Manderley army. For lack of a better term, Sir Roger Cassell and Maester Lewin were Rob Stark's representatives or figureheads in the north, and without Cassell or Lewin, there is no subordinate who can take the fight to the Ironborn, since everyone's fighting each other. Add on to that, the Boltons are active traitors, don't forget that, and were the ones who sacked Winterfell, and there's a desperate need for a unifying political-slash-military figure in command, namely Rob Stark. That means that Rob himself has to get to the north to throw the Ironborn back into the sea and confront Ramsay at the very least for his treason. Also, you can hang Bruce Bolton in the, in the whole mix. I don't really care. If Rob doesn't go back north, he'll face eventual mutiny from his northern bannermen. So, bad choice number two. Move his army back to the north and retake his homeland from the Ironborn. As Catelyn says, this is the only choice as Rob needs to retake his homeland or he'll lose legitimacy as a king before his lords. And militarily speaking... Though there are a lot of dangers of trying to get back to the North that we're absolutely going to cover in future Catelyn chapters. For instance, the twins are, are there, and that's going to be kind of big in the future of Storm Swords, maybe, perhaps. But in an alternative universe where Rob successfully gets into the North, somehow, he probably is able to repel the remaining Iron Men that Victorian and Asha left in the North after Balon's death. Moreover, George was once asked whether an independent northern slash Riverlands kingdom would have survived if there was no redding if there was no red wedding. And he said, the, the north perhaps, the Riverlands are more problematic with no real natural boundaries. The Riverlands are vulnerable to attack from all sides, which is why their history has been so full of blood and tumult. That answer provides a major downfall to the strategy. The Riverlands are to use a political science term. I do have a minor in political science. Royally fucked. Edmure was just barely able to hold out against the Lannisters on the fords when it was merely the Lannisters making the attempt on the fords. Factor in the Tyrells, and Edmure would be outnumbered something like 10 to 1 in trying to hold out, and the hold them at the fords strategy probably wouldn't have worked ultimately. Now, it's just kind of amusing here as I was writing this. The only real way this thing would have maybe worked is if Edmure pulled all his forces back into the castles of Harrenhal and Riverrun, grabbed up as much of the Protoss as possible, kicked out all of the small folk that he, of course, had safeguarded in Riverrun and done a Brendan Tully and a Feast for Crows type thing of kicking everyone out and waited for Rob to march back down the causeway to rescue them. Basically a redux of what he happened when Rob came south in a Game of Thrones. That would have been an extraordinarily cruel decision and absolutely un like though, for the Riverlands small folk to be just kicked out of Riverrun, given that they just went through the Lancers raping, murdering, and pillaging their way through their territory not too long back and would probably receive a second batch of that horror. But that's honestly, I think it's the only way that military strategy would work. Ultimately, though, events in the story itself would have played themselves out, kind of, if you think about it. The Lancers and Tyrells would have come to blows with each other, eventually separating out. The Sparrows were likely on the rise even at this point. The Golden Company and Aegon would have arrived. The Dornish would have probably taken a side against the Lannisters. When you consider the broad scope of macro-political events that occurred outside of the control of Robb Stark, Edmure Tully, and Catelyn Stark, the problems from the South would have mostly kind of resolved themselves, if you think about it. Now, that's entirely presentist. That's an entirely presentist lens, rather, to view the story. But it does make you think and consider that the rush to get north quickly was predicated on trying to outrun the Lannisters and Tyrells, but events in the story would have probably overcome them anyways. 
So from a macro political level, there's a political tragedy to the whole thing. The macro political tragedy seems small, though, when it's compared to the smaller scale tra- character tragedy about to, be- to befall the Starks and the Tullys. Yes, and when we when we talk about tragedy here on the Not a Cast, we tend to talk, we, we tend to reach back for Shakespeare and the Greeks because those are a lot common reference points for a lot of people: Hamlet and Oedipus and Macbeth and Medea and so forth. But in terms of more modern tragedy, in terms of the kinds the kinds of stuff written when you know within George R. R. Martin's lifetime, one solid reference point is Chinua Achebe's Things Fall Apart, his novel from the 1950s, and you can find a lot of parallels between that great novel and A Song of Ice and Fire. The protagonist, Okonkwo, is determined to erase the legacy of his father, who is considered weak and shameful, much like Tywin with his father. And Okonkwo later kills his foster son, taken in from an enemy tribe, similar to the kind of dynamic with Theon at Winterfell. In the story, even as he strives to be the ideal man by the standards of his culture and society, that culture and society are transformed. Specifically, they're transformed by colonialism. That's the context of Things Fall Apart. Nigeria is being overtaken by both political authorities and religious missionaries from Europe. And obviously, there is no such social context here with Rob's kingdom. But for me, the the emotions kind of resonate the same, the, that, that sense of loss. Rob has been racing to keep up with his image. And even as he fully and finally embodies it, that image is made irrelevant by a changing world. And it reminds me of those the great lines from Things Fall Apart. Now he has won our brothers, and our clan can no longer act like one. He has put a knife on the things that held us together, and we have fallen apart. I think if you make the he Tywin Lannister there, I think that's a pretty accurate description of what happens to Rob Stark. Really, the, the, the tragic aspect of The Song of Ice and Fire is felt strongest in the story of the Starks, and really the hammer blow falls in, in A Storm of Swords and Catelyn's chapters. And sadly for Catelyn, it only goes downhill from here. Going forward, it's, each chapter gets successively worse for poor Catelyn Stark and for poor Rob Stark as well. No kidding. And uh, moving into foreshadowing and groundwork, speaking of Catelyn's next chapter, Lord Karstark's <laughs> rage is going to pay off in that chapter when he kills the teenage captives, Tion Frey and Willem Lannister in their beds. That's kind of the, the big overarching subject of the next Catelyn chapter. So this isn't just here just to make Catelyn feel alone in the moment. This is going to pay off big time. Yeah. And, and, and you know, I, I love... Uh, I think it was Stephen Atwell who talked about Rickard Karstark as basically being on a, a suicide mission, mm-hmm. basically from the death of his his two sons at the Battle of the Whispering Wood going forward. And and you know, there's been the idea that he was trying to like die gloriously in battle and somehow couldn't wasn't able to get that from the campaign in the Westerlands. And so now he's being stuck here at River Run back in a sort of in quotation marks peaceful time period. But he has to find a way to kill himself to to join his sons in death, and he finds the most horrible way possible by first murdering children, and then of course being beheaded by Rob Stark in the middle of uh, the middle late portion of of Catelyn's third chapter in A Storm of Swords. Ricard Karstark's a favorite character of mine, not because I you know love him or anything, but just because I love I love how extra all the Karstarks are, and I love how how hard <laughs> Ricard goes to make things horrible for Rob in his next chapter. Like he he thinks through how to make this unbearable. And it's it's kind of impressive. His his politics are actually pretty pretty keen. They're just put to the worst possible ends. Catelyn also notes in this chapter that Jane has childbearing hips, but unfortunately her mother Sibel will not allow her daughter to become pregnant. And uh, Sibel, we really don't really don't spend much time with her until we get that big scene with Jamie in a feast for crows. She's actually not in very much, considering how important she turns out to be. That that one scene makes her so hateful that I think it stands out in people's <laughs> memories. But yeah, that's uh, that's you know you got the you got the Karstarks, you got the Lannisters, the Freys, the Boltons, Sibel. There's just knives from every angle. You're right, and I and I think one aspect of it that really 
it, it makes it so it makes me so angry because because I reread Catelyn three right a few days ago before we came to this episode and just just the fact that like Jane is like really hopeful that she can mm-hmm. get pregnant she's like my mother makes me this potion every single morning and you're yeah. like oh that that's brutal that bitch <laughs> that, <laughs> right wow. Like you can't help but but feel like angry, especially knowing as as a reread podcast, knowing what is actually at work there that she's feeding her daughter an abortifacid, and I, and I think you know there's or, or rather a, a moon tea as a, a as a as a contraceptive, I think in this case. When Catelyn in this chapter is, is listing all of it, you know the reasons that the phrase don't like anybody else. One thing she says is that Hoster once refused to marry Edmure to one of Walder Frey's daughters. This is something Lord Walder brought up as well. And that becomes important because the, you know, the cover story for the Red Wedding is Edmure marrying a Frey girl. So that's what kind of makes it make sense for the reader. Oh, this is something Lord Walder wanted. Now he's getting what he wanted. And that, again, it preserves the fiction just until it's all ripped away. Yeah. Again, it's one of those things that you just like get mad about after a while because mm-hmm. you're like, oh, Walter Frey is like that guy who like wanted something and got something just a little bit better or a lot of bit better, depending on his on his perspective. And now he's getting the thing that he wanted for so many years. He's like enraged then, so enraged that he, he does the Red Wedding. Now, I, I think, uh, uh, of course, Edmure is... <laughs> Ed Edmure is, is such a such a great character. Like you feel like, like in this chapter, he becomes like the the the, the whipping boy for for his family members, and then it's subsequently like every single chapter is him just getting like further beaten down by his family members. And then when he gets to the red wedding, or when he gets to the twins rather, it, it's made very clear that uh, that he, once again he has to assume this kind of subservient role to Walter Frey, and it chafes him. But then he finds out that yeah, Rosalind's great. She's 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 hot, bro. Um, and and sadly, that of course becomes part even part of the cover story for uh, for the Red Wedding itself. That he was that Walter Frey makes it attempts to make it so that it does does not look like a trap, into, which means it absolutely is a trap. And one thing I think that's that's uh, easy to mi- miss your first time through with everything going on in this chapter is when Cadlin says there were five wolf pups. Rob, they were sent by the gods. They were here to protect you, all my children. And Rob has to remind Catelyn, no, mom, there were six wolf pups, not five, and one was for John. It's not the last time that John is a point of contention between them, because, of course, later in the book, Rob will name John as his heir over Catelyn's objections. And I so think George is kind of like slipping this in here to remind us, hey, Rob and Catelyn don't agree about John. So it doesn't feel like it's coming out of nowhere when they really come to blows about it. It's interesting that, that Catelyn just brushes it over in this chapter, mm-hmm. but when it's brought up again at Old Stones, Catelyn thinks Catelyn had not forgotten about John, which I think is really, really yeah. good because like Catelyn has been here has been consciously trying not to think about John, but then it's later revealed that yeah, she's been thinking about John quite a bit since events from uh, since since she learned that Br- she learned in quotation marks that Bran Rickon had died, and so here she has to be. Uh, she she kind of brushes it over and hopes hopes they can move past it. But when it becomes to the point where she can't brush past it and move past it, and she has to address the the white wolf in the room, so to speak, it is something that becomes a yet another point of an excellent character. Uh, it becomes an excellent point of conflict for these two characters. Another point of contention that just is is brilliantly uh, done in in in, in, a, in a storm of swords, John five, a storm of swords. I about to say Rob five, a storm of swords, Catelyn five. So this would be normally where we go into our theory and discussion portion, but the big theory to discuss in this chapter is, of course, who really messed up with the Battle of the Fords, Rob or Edmure. And as we said earlier, we're going to be covering that in our Patreon episode this month. So I think that's actually going to wrap us up for Storm of Swords, Catalan 2. 
So thanks so much for listening. As always, please wait and review us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, Podbean, Spotify, anywhere and everywhere you find our podcasts. You can check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash notacast, A-S-O-I-A-F. You can follow us on Twitter at notacast, A-S-O-I-A-F, or shoot us an email at notacast, A-S-O-I-A-F at gmail.com. You can find me at Poor Quentin on Twitter. And you can find me at Brenda Beefish on Twitter, Brenda Beefish on Reddit, and my website is brendabeefish.substack.com. We want to shout out and thank our high lords and ladies on Patreon, Red Ralu himself, who has renounced his allegiance to the Squishers, Lady of a Thousand Words, Septon Marybolt, the Shoeless Sage, Sister Winter, Lady of the Wolfswood, Nessie the Elusive, Warden of the Neck, Defender of the North and Keeper of Secrets, Sir Thomas the Raven Knight, Lord of Blackwood, Sir Way of Course, Matt Warden of the Sanguine Shore, Lord Sam Kay, Wisdom Benjicut, Alchemist of Sets and Quanta, Mage of the Arts of Bull and De Morgan, Tibbs the Great of House Catnapping, Lord J. Manderley, Baker of the Fray Pies, Hodinus, a prostitute, Lady Silverwing, Caboth the Unfrozen, Lord of the Bricks and Castle Crimson Light, Sir Keith of House Corbray, Wielder of Lady Forlorn, Lord Andrew, Warden of the Dubai Sands, Lord Young of the Ghostwoods, Lady Mira Reed, Wielder of Dark Sister, Slayer of Tinfoil, Sir Will of the Narco-Syndicalist Commune, Lord Clay, Sir Small Paul, Guardian of the Stonehaven, Defender of Dunatar Castle, Septon T-Bone, the Low Septon, Refined Wrangler of Icy Arachnids, Lady Veronica, who has abandoned the orphans at the end of the crossroads from the Queen of Memes, Lady Danielle of House Lannister, Titanium Pirate, Lady Joan, Lady Ranger of the Frost Fangs, Sydney of House Quo, Princess of the Friendly Black Hotties in the Summer Isles, Random, First Protector of Cripples, Bastards, and Broken Things, Sir, Lady, Jordan, Defender of the God's Eye, Lord Peter, not Peter, Drinker of Strong Wine and Lord Commander of the Flat Planetos Society, Lady of Rainy Afternoons, James of House Keen, Lord of the Forest City, Admiral of the Cuyahoga, and Warden of the Western Reserve, Lady Ken of House Motown, Goddess of Sips and Wine, and Sir Andrew of H-Town. Thank you so much, as always, to all our High Lords and Ladies for your support. Absolutely. Thank you so very much for your support. It means the world to us. So, join us next week for A Storm of Swords, John 2, in which Jon Snow narrowly avoids execution by having sex with a redhead. Wow, that doesn't sound like a bad bargain at all. And we'll be rejoined by a returning guest, Sir Stefan Sasse of the Boiled Leather Audio Hour for this episode. Cannot wait for this episode. Stefan's one of the greats in the fandom. We even, we even referenced him earlier in the episode. He's got one of, the, one of the best minds and has done some of the best writing about it. So we're real excited to have him back for this. It's going to be so much fun. So thank you again for listening. Thank you to our patrons for supporting us. And we'll see you next time for A Storm of Swords, John 2. <laughs>